Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today, I'm very pleased to have uh, Nick Molden, who is founder and CEO of Emission Analytics. Nick is an Oxford graduate uh, with more than 15 years experience in the information sector, specializing in advanced modeling techniques to help businesses extract profit from data. Through real-world testing, Nick is profoundly committed to improving vehicle emissions, which is the subject of today's podcast. As well as leading emission analytics and the EQUA index, he is co-founder of the Allow Independent Road Testing, AIR. Nick, welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. Great to have you. So, can you tell the listeners to start off here what emissions analytics does? In short, we do independent real world. And this came out of a profound dissatisfaction with particularly how emissions testing was working in Europe, where data was either owned by manufacturers or owned by governments and regulators, and very little in between. And what was growing up was growing gulf between those official figures and what we saw as happening in reality. So we set ourselves up essentially in the middle to be able to do something deceptively simple, which was to go and get some vehicles and go and test them in a standardized way and publish the data. That independence and not being tied to either side meant that we could speak much more freely and draw attention to problems that otherwise other people were unable to. And I think that helped sort of shine a light on what's, uh, what's going on uh, and uh, hopefully bring about essentially a better functioning market. Our view was that the market isn't working right because manufacturers were building cars just to pass the test and consumers mm. were being misled as to the real-world performance, particularly fuel consumption and, and latterly the NOx emissions, nit- nitrogen oxide emissions. So it was to try and solve the dysfunction through the, the power of independent data. So one of the things that caught my eye, um, which led me to um, invite you onto the podcast, is that you have mentioned in a, in a recent article, which is, by the way, for listeners, is actually posted on the Future Fuel Strategies website, and I will also link when I, when I post uh, this podcast. But in a recent article, you mentioned that particulate matter from tires, which is also known as non-exhaust emissions, is a growing environmental problem. So first of all, I think for listeners who may not be, be familiar, I think this is a, has, is, is, has been a growing issue um, of concern in Europe. In other parts of the world, it's kind of not there yet. Um, it, it definitely doesn't come up so much here in the U.S., not as much as it is in Europe. So can you explain, first of all, what non-exhaust emissions um, is? And, you know, in the course of that, you know, why do you think this is, is so and what you're finding in the testing? Non-exhaust emissions generally encompass three things, which is material lost from tires during operation, from brakes, and also from the road surface itself. So obviously, not only do the tires wear, but the road surface wears as well. And these three sources create particle emissions. I mean, we've decided to focus on 
tyres, first of all, because we believe that is the single largest of the three as a source, but also that it's growing uh, as a problem. I mean, there's strong evidence that the heavier the vehicle, the more uh, the tyre wear emissions are, everything else being equal, whereas brake wear with more regenerative braking may well decline. So tyres was our priority out of those three. And the underlying concern was, in a sense, it's about regulatory efficiency. It's very easy just to take what we're regulating today and just make that progressively tighter and tighter over time. And there's an arms race, a, a, a macho race between regions to just, just regulate harder. One of my concerns is that actually that's not the efficient way of doing it, particularly as if you, are, you put all the effort into that and neglect something else which is not regulated, which is actually more important. And I think we're getting to that stage now with the tailpipe. You know, modern vehicles, particularly modern diesel vehicles, there's now so little pollutant coming out of the tailpipe uh, except for CO2. They're getting down into the regions of being very hard to measure. And that includes particle emissions. The regulated level in Europe for particles at the tailpipe is 4.5 milligrams per kilometre. But reality, from our data, it's probably a tenth of that, and in certain circumstances, a hundredth of that. So we're, we're now talking down to extremely low mass of particles coming out of the tailpipe, yet that is the thing which is regulated, and tyres are not regulated. So what, what we're trying to say is actually, if you want to continue the drive towards reducing ambient particle concentration, Further regulating and tightening the tailpipe will do nothing. It'll just add cost to the vehicle and more testing requirements to the manufacturers for virtually no benefit. When actually the thing that should be looked at uh, and, the, the, and the predominant source now is tyres. So we think the, the effort in terms of understanding the problem, whether it's re it may be regulation or it may just be consumer information and labelling. I'm, I'm relatively Catholic about that. <laughs> um, but the priority is to, is to really understand how big a source fires are in real-world operation with a view then to doing something about it. And I do know from discussions with you know, various governments is that uh, there is a concern as we buy more and more SUVs, which are on average heavier, and particularly with electric and electrified vehicles carrying heavy battery packs, that there will be a tendency to rising particle emissions from tyres, which may bring back particle exceedances in ambient air quality measurement that we thought we'd solved. That's why we got into it uh, in the first place. And our initial testing, the first thing we tried to do was to understand how big a problem is it. So we, we took a vehicle, a Volkswagen Golf, you know, big selling vehicle, and we went and drove it pretty aggressively, le what I would describe as legally but aggressively, with high payload, so full of passengers, at motorway speeds on a very average quality road surface. And we put on there the cheapest set of brand new tires we could find. Uh, and then we went and drove it for 200 miles, round, basically round and round a track and then measured the mass of the tires at the beginning 
and at the end, and to get us just a very simple mass loss total. And what we found was, I mean, quite incredible mass that was lost of about um, 1.8 kilograms of material. Now, to put that in context, the four tires were about 30 kilos each new. So there's 120 kilos of tire, uh, and it shed in just 200 miles, 1.8 kilos of that. And uh, people who've seen these results and commented on it have said, well, you know, that can't possibly be because the tires, they would have negative mass within 10,000 miles. Well, the truth of it is, yes, those tires would be completely run balled very quickly um, if you continue to drive uh, in that way. And we realized I mean, this was not intended to be average driving. It was intended to say, right, you know, at the extreme, how bad can it be? So that, that 1,800 grams worked out to approximately 5 grams per kilometer, just over 5 grams per kilometer. So that is the worst case scenario, if you like. Compare that to what I said about the tailpipe mass. The regulated maximum is 4.5 milligrams per kilometer. And we're not aware of any non-compliant cars. So let's take that. So 4.5 plays 5 grams. The tire wear emissions in the worst case scenario are a thousand times higher than the, the regulated maximum from the tailpipe. And that is why, after these initial experiments, we concluded our theory that this is an important area was borne out. We're now moving on to further testing, which will look at how good can it get. So, if you have the best quality tires on a relatively light vehicle, driven very normally, how low is it? Is that then still more than the tailpipe or is it less than the tailpipe? And those results uh, we should have ready for release in, in the next few weeks. So it's, uh, it's very close. And then the, the sort of third stage beyond that is then to understand what are the variables that then govern the rate of emissions of those tires. So to what extent is it speed, acceleration, cornering, vehicle weight, tire quality, road surface quality, we need to start understanding which of those are the contributory factors. What we can definitely see from our initial testing is if you're driving along at relatively steady speed, even quite fast, the tire wear rate is low. It's when you corner, and particularly corner at high speed, that is when you get very large spikes in emissions. And, and we were able to see this because we were sampling at the tyre as well as doing mass loss calculation. And for that, we used a Ducati LP Plus equipment, which is a real-time diffusion charging system, which gives us the not only the mass and the number of particles in real time, it also gives the real-time size distribution. So we were able to see as we cornered, not only did we get a spike, we actually could see what the size distribution of that spike was. So, even, so I guess the, the, the conclusion from this early testing is that we've got a very good idea of the total magnitude of the problem, but we've got some very useful data understanding the, the types of particles and, the, uh, and some initial ideas as to the conditions under which the, you get the spikes of emissions. So it's definitely an important area. It definitely requires more work. So much work is going into Euro 7. 
which is the new tailpipe regulations, I think there's definitely, there needs to be a rebalancing of regulatory effort towards this area. So that leads into my, my next couple questions. So the first thing is you talked about, you know, like labeling as a potential area, but in, in reality, what can be done about these emissions? I mean, after all, you know, for the listeners who may not be familiar, I mean, particulate matter is a known human carcinogen. I mean, it is a serious area of attention globally. There's all kinds of statistics about, you know, the impact of particulate matter on human health. So what can be done about these emissions? And why hasn't there been much regulatory attention on this uh, to date? Let me take that. I'll take the second point first about the why hasn't there been much attention. I, I, I mean, it's just quite an oversight that it has had so little attention. I mean, I do know, I mean, the industry, the tyre industry themselves have a research project that has been going on for many years, which has is quite serious sort of a scope terms of reference and, and is generating some important data. It seems to be going a little slower perhaps than it could. But I think maybe the, the reason is, I mean, tyres are not quite as obvious a source to the general public as, as the exhaust pipe. I mean, the tailpipe is obviously, you know, something, you, the immediate thing you go to look at when you're, you're considering emissions from vehicles. So I think tyres are not quite as obvious. And people may instinctively think, well, yes, they do wear, but the, the amount is real. Plus also, I think um, because of Dieselgate, there's, it has dragged attention even more away from other sources and, and, and put so much activity and regulatory attention on the tailpipe that it's crowded out effort into other areas. But now I do think you know, there is now the rebalancing of it. There was a advisors to the UK government came out with an important report a few months ago from the air quality experts group highlighting this as a major topic. The thing which actually put begun to put tyre wear emissions on the map is actually not so much from an air pollution point of view, but from a marine pollution. So tyres essentially shed both bigger particles, which get essentially washed into the water course and typically end up in the sea and to some extent inside fish. And oh, wow. I didn't know same, that. Yeah. No, so, well, it's part of the, the thing which put it on the map was the, the, the microplastics debate that got going uh, a few uh, years ago. And, and, and I should say, not tyres are not the only source of microplastics, not at all. So it was things like the, the microbeads in shampoos and other beauty products, which were then, again, washed down into the, the water system. But scientists were increasingly observing these microplastics in the marine environment and causing quite a lot of damage. And so that's where the source, I think, of the pressure has come from. But now people have started looking. We're now seeing actually tyres also can create ultrafine particles. And from our initial testing, we were, we were recording particles you know, down at 10 nanometers level, which is uh, even below the, the lower size cutoff of the tailpipe regulation. So simultaneously, you can have both these microplastics from the, going into the watercourse and the airborne, airborne particulates. Now, I think now, as ever, as soon as you start looking at a topic, um, you start finding more things. 
So I think you know we're we're there are still the early days in, in terms of tyres, but we'll go on, we'll now begin to accelerate our our understanding of it, which then will help answer your first question, which is about what can we do about it. Uh, essentially, the the understanding is not deep enough at the moment. Mm. What is a good hypothesis, though? Um, I mean, I can see from our testing, even though we haven't re- released the results yet, that the quality of tyre does make a very large difference. People tend to think because they are round and black, uh, they the tyres are all much of a muchness. This is not true. The, the composition, I mean, tyres are very sophisticated products with multiple ingredients and different designs and a lot of intellectual property in them. They're not all the same. And, and the difference between you know, the, the, the very cheap tyre that we tested and now the top-end tyres we're now testing, we're seeing very substantial differences in tyre wear rates under the same driving conditions. So one thing we can be fairly certain of is that if you get a better quality tyre, you can reduce the emissions quite a lot. The only issue is, how do you know which are the better quality tyres and which are not? So that immediately leads you down the road of some form of labeling consumer information so they know that you know they know if i if i spend an extra twenty dollars and buy that tire it will be an a-rated tire rather than an e-rated tire so that's one very simple thing there are definitely other things like if you amend your driving style and corner less aggressively that will definitely have an effect if you you know don't carry extraneous weight in your vehicle that will have some effects as well so you know with our understanding is beginning to grow now but uh the only thing we're, the one we can only be really quite certain about now is that the the grade of tire can make a big big difference so do you think from a philosophical point of view that because there's been lots of discussion about and even there's there's you know legislation that's been passed uh, in France other countries are considering phase out or ban of internal combustion engine vehicles, you know, but but really this doesn't just affect internal combustion engine vehicles, it, it also impacts electric vehicles as well. So do you think this issue with the, the potential for uh, growing particulate matter derived from non-exhaust emissions will just sort of hasten sort of some of the calls to just get away from personal transport in general and just go to, you know, uh, public public transport, shared rides, um, you know, bus, metro rail, active transport, walking, cycling, and to just do away with personal transport altogether. Just a philosophical question. Well, that's a chunky philosophical question. I'll do my best to <laughs> I think uh, well, undoubtedly it will lead for a call for those sorts of things. Whether there's any chance that there, that is heeded is another matter entirely. Just in the very simply, a call for either regulating or pricing this new source of emissions, this new externality, would make a lot of sense. Because there is a nightmare scenario here, which is we're pushing very rapidly for battery electrification of the light duty fleet. We're for sound CO2 reduction reasons. But the danger is that if nothing else is changed, 
if I change my current car, which costs me approximately 15 cents a mile to drive, so the marginal cost in terms of fuel to drive an extra mile is about 15 cents. If I switch to a pure battery electric vehicle, that may cost me, let's say, five cents to drive. So what will happen, in my opinion, is that there will be, it'll have two primary effects. Firstly, because essentially suddenly personal transportation becomes cheaper, then people will make more journeys. Journeys they wouldn't otherwise do suddenly become affordable and desirable. So there could be an increase in road miles due to, but even more would be there would be a switching effect, a substitution effect away from public transport to the private motor car. Again, because of that price effect. So certainly in Europe, the and speaking of the United Kingdom particularly, where train fares are very expensive, I could quite imagine that there would be a switch away from trains to the private motor car. Even worse is what might happen to the bus network. The bus network has been is in long-term decline anyway. You may be surprised to hear it, but you know because the narrative is all around trying to get people into public transport and building bus networks and etc. The truth of it is mm-hmm. that bus usage has been on long-term decline pretty much everywhere. I believe I think same, Los same Angeles here in the US. Up, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, exactly. I think in LA, LA it's down about twenty-five percent over the last ten years. Some something like that. It's definitely been on a downward trend. London has always been held out as the exception to this, where the bus fleet has been drastically improving quality, the frequency of services, the number of bus lanes. So it's been a, a success. Even that has now turned. The number of bus miles are now declining in London. And essentially, that's because bus travel is, is an inferior good. And I mean that in the technical economics, the inferior good. As people's incomes grow, they will get less. It's not a desirable mode of transport. I and mean, people would prefer other forms of transport. If, if electric are much cheaper to operate than the old internal combustion engine, people will switch away from bus transportation to private cars. And so not only will that increase the traffic and congestion on the road, it will wreck the economics of bus networks. So either then governments will have to put in much more subsidies to prop up those services or accept a reduction in the, the bus networks. And that then always tends to have a self-fulfilling effect of then passenger numbers fall further and then you cut more services yeah, until the service They call it the death spiral here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of a, a, a reverse network effect. So the nightmare scenario is that high penetration of electric vehicles leads to more congestion, more air quality problems through the particularly these non-exhaust emissions, and it wrecks the economics of some public transportation for a CO2 reduction, which is real. I don't think the CO2 reduction, it's certainly not 100% CO2 reduction because of all the upstream, but maybe it's a 50% reduction in CO2. So we get back to our old trade-offs between different pollutants and and different desirable outcomes. And I don't think at the moment there is enough thought being put into those second-round economic consumer choice, consumer choices. Before I get some 
trolled extensively on online. I mean, I should say, I mean, <laughs> electric vehicles are, uh, in many ways, a fantastic product. And also, my personal opinion is a lot of city centres, particularly in Europe, given the, the geographical nature of city centres in Europe, should be car-free, completely car, not, e- not even electric vehicles in them, to improve the quality of the, of, of the environment there and have very efficient transportation systems people to the periphery of the city and then and then they ha- then they only go in via on foot or on sort of vehicular bicycles uh, or whatever other ways of doing it so i'm not arguing that in all the, the motor car is great in all cases and uh, and that uh, the internal combustion engine is great in all cases what i'm saying is think about electric vehicles from the economic point of view and that there could be a great technology if harnessed and deployed and priced and governed in the right way. If they're just let rip uh, in an uncontrolled fashion, we may have a number of quite serious negative consequences. The question that I have for you is actually, you know, this this issue about trolling sort of dovetails into to what I want to ask you about. So first of all, have you been trolled? And the question that I wanted to ask you related to that is that this issue is not the first time this issue has been raised with respect to either internal combustion engines, vehicles, or electric vehicles. I am aware of other papers that have been put out there where, you know, really wasn't received well in the EV community, which is a very dedicated and, and very passionate. I mean, it got very, very heated and even personal. So I'm wondering, first of all, you know, are you hearing the same? And then more generally, what has been the reaction from auto industry, from governments, you know, either the the, the commission, European Commission in the EU, the UK government, perhaps the US, Canada, China, you know, some of the big car market countries. Are you hearing any any reaction about that? And is and do you see these governments getting more in, involved in this area beyond what's already been happening? So on the, on the first point, so um, whenever I say anything that is construed as even vaguely negative towards electric vehicles, it will bring out a very pretty predictable group of people with arguments that are little more sophisticated than you just don't get it and you're clearly a bad person. I'm always uh, open to debating, having proper reasoned debate, which, by the way, is not possible on Twitter, but I have many bilateral and I'm open to any debates with anyone uh, on the basis of facts and and properly reasoned arguments on it. And uh, and to reiterate, I, I think, EVs could be a great thing if, if, if done properly. At the moment, I can understand why it is a very big problem in terms of CO2 reduction needs. Uh, and getting anything to happen requires huge effort and a huge push. Um, and, and, and sort of nuanced arguments with, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that doesn't tend to stir up the emotions in such a way as can get governments to shift and get consumer behavior to shift. So I do on one level understand why if we're serious about electric vehicles, then uh, then you do need to be very passionate about it and very vocal. So I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it should, and, and 
And but it should not be to the ignoring the fact. Those people, whilst at the same time making a very vocal argument and a very polemical argument, should have be responsible enough to actually in the background make sure they have the facts and the whole policy position is well thought through and internally consistent and isn't likely to lead us down an avenue that will just lead to some unintended consequences. So if you want to be a vocal advocate of a technology, you do need to have the research and your argument really robust. And then that's fine. And then and then we can debate it. I do get worried when certain governments um, have got have, have uh, assumed a position and, and, and certain many European governments are now in the position of um, whatever the problem is, the answer is more electric vehicles. Mm. And that's a very dangerous. So, you know, if it's, uh, what are we going to do about the urban NOx problem? Ah, more electric vehicles. What are we going to do about CO2? More electric vehicles. That is not the correct flow of the logic in an argument. A policy has been decided that electric vehicles, and then the facts must be assembled to fit that argument. That is very, very dangerous. And also blinkers people to thinking about these second order effects and uh, actually whether it may be better to completely ban vehicles in certain areas rather than having people switch to different types of vehicles. So it can be become very blinkered. And I'm seeing that quite a lot in Europe at the moment. And that's why you know, there are people now flagging this issue of non-exhaust emissions, but they're in the minority. This is not, this is not in the mainstream yet. This is not being assimilated into the EV policies to say, ah, yes, okay, but for EVs, we're pushing for EVs, but they must have this, at least this quality of tyre, for example, Mm. or the the maximum mass of the vehicle needs to be this. I mean, there's various things you could do to make the policy more sophisticated. The reality of what's happening at the moment is most of the electric vehicles which are coming onto the roads, both in the United States and in in Europe are very heavy vehicles. And, and and probably the people who bought them are switching from vehicles which were somewhat lighter. So there may be, so we are having already happening. Yes, there may be reduced CO2, maybe, but it's at the price of higher particle emissions. But it's not even sure about whether, you know, how big the CO2 reductions are because the majority of people who are switching in Europe at the moment are switching to plug-in hybrid vehicles rather than full electric vehicles, which have uh, which have their their own issues. And one of the things which is also getting lost in the noise is one technology which used to be at the forefront of being green, which is now deeply unfashionable, which is the standard full hybrid vehicle. So the the non-plug-in hybrid vehicle with a battery pack of 1.5 to 2 kilowatt hours. And and I think this is, our, our data suggests this is the great overlooked technology for rapid decarbonization. For every EV that you create, you're crowding out roughly, you could buy the same, for the same amount of battery pack size, about 40 hybrid vehicles, which leads to, and this just does assume that battery materials are of restricted supply currently and expensive which is true today and may well persist for some time. So so long as we have that constrained, 
for a CO2 reduction point of view, it's arguably better to have 40 full hybrids than one full EV. My view is that we should push for a program of mass hybridization because there will be relatively little consumer uh, opposition to that. There's no change in behavior required. There's not a non-exhaust emissions problem because the battery packs are very small, so they don't add much weight. And you could hybridize most of the fleet with the available battery material rather than having a much smaller group. And in total, I think you could reduce fleet CO2 emissions by about 30%. That's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, literally if you hybridized everything. And you need to compare that then to the, what is the real CO2 reduction from EV? I mean, it is substantial. And the, 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 the whole life cycle emissions models do vary hugely. But a typical life cycle um, analysis suggests that an EV is 50% or so less CO2 than the equivalent internal combustion engine. So really you're playing 30% reduction that's possible from hybridization and 50% from full electrification. Now, that clearly full electrification is better, but it's not that much better. It's not 100%. And I think the trajectory should be mass hybridization to get the 30% as quickly as possible, while the supply chain and the recharging infrastructure around EVs is figured out to get that extra 20%, and maybe more as the, as, as the grid is decarbonized further. But that, take, that, takes, that takes time and investment. And because carbon dioxide is cumulative in the atmosphere, we have a world, you know, carbon budget, a total amount of carbon we can put into the air cumulatively. There's a premium on getting reductions going right now. It's another aspect of the blinkered government policy in, in many European countries now, which to say we're just we're just driving for full electrification. You know, yeah. that's the only thing, that's the answer. But if that doesn't really materialize for 10 to 20 years. You've lost out of 10 to 20 years of potential significant CO2 reduction through much more rapid hybridization. And I think that's a, that's a mistake through just a, just a singularity of vision when actually I think if, if, if there were more sophisticated approaches, you could, you could get a much better outcome, much lower risk in the outcome. But it is, I think people shy away from it because it's a slightly more complicated proposition. And uh, coming back to where we started in this particular question, uh, Twitter is not a good vehicle for nuanced argument. And so (laughs) it doesn't tend to get get much traction there, just uh, abuse. Only so much you can do with with 140 characters. And so I just, you know, I just want to say, yeah, I mean, as someone who follows these policies, I can tell you firsthand that I don't see a focus on hybridization. Actually, it's, it's more to the contrary. Um, you know, there are some climate action plans that are beginning to be translated into policy that, you know, ban the hybrid right along with it. But I do want to say, because I think it's, it's, I think it's important for electric vehicle folks who might be, be listening to this podcast, is it's not a, this, you know, just as you said, this is not a hit job because there are those people out there. There are those people out there, and we have to acknowledge, you know, as, as much as there are very, very passionate supporters of electric vehicles, there are, are passionate supporters on, on the other side who, and I think the sensitivity is, is, oh, you exploit any, you know, weakness in the electric vehicle uh, technology, you know, to sort of do a hit job. And that's really not what this is about, because if you think about the long term 
and the big picture. The big picture is, look, if you look at the European context, I mean, I, I think Dieselgate, you know, there are many lessons that can be drawn from Dieselgate. One thing that people don't seem to talk about, um, and I'm kind of like, oh, but I was there, is, you know, governments, you know, facilitated the rise of diesel in Europe with tax differentiation. Now come to find out, you know, there are all these these issues. The governments have a responsibility and a role to, you know, play in that situation as much as there were loopholes that were exploited and everything that sort of uh, fell out of Dieselgate, which we don't need to get into here. Do we really want to walk down a, a pathway where we aren't really addressing and closing um, gaps in the technology? Lots of things are being done, you know, on recycling and sort of these other areas that need to be shored up for the electric vehicle technology, extending range, all, all these things. It's all wonderful and really good. But do we want to sort of find ourselves 10 years, you know, 15 years, 20 years down the line where governments have invested heavily, the car companies have invested heavily, the suppliers have invested um, heavily, you know, the oil companies and others have invested heavily to create this infrastructure. And then we find out, oh, my gosh, particulate matter is still a problem. And there are all these other issues as well. So why not address them now? and close that gap so that, you know, this technology can sort of mature in the way that it needs to and really make that that contribution. So that's kind of my thinking <laughs> about this, to be very honest about sort of seeing, you know, that there are some issues here. It's not a perfect technology. There is no such thing. And I think that's the government tendency. I have seen this in fuels for 25 years. It's always sort of the flavor of the month. And there is a lack of nuance in, in policy um, setting to sort of be able to see some of these big pictures to do the things that need to be closed to do the things that need to be done to close gaps and to acknowledge that, you know, there are many good attributes here. It's not perfect. We're going, going to go with this intent and in, in, in contra on the contrary, there tends to be more silver bulleting. And I do see that a little bit here with the electric vehicle technology. But I think now is the time to really kind of look at these kinds of issues and close the gaps. And the last thing I will say, and I'd like you to respond to this before we, uh, you know, before we close is what consumers really want. You know, we see this rise of the SUV. And I have been saying that the market will really take off. I think when consumers see vehicles uh, more and more in the U.S., in China, in Europe, elsewhere, that's really similar to what they're driving now. We're going to see the car industry come out with a lot of different models. The thing that people like driving in all of these different regions is the SUV. So what happens when you electrify, you have a, you know, electric vehicles heavier right now, you know, maybe there'll be some light weighting in the future, but heavy right now. And then you turn that into an SUV do you actually end up with a potentially larger issue when it comes to this non-exhaust emission? Absolutely. But you also have this trend towards SUVs is generally very bad for CO2 emissions generally. From what governs the outcome here is the, the sort of big tide underlying it. And the, and the big tide is towards bigger and heavier vehicles. And that's a problem not just for non-exhaust tire wear emissions, but for, for CO2 emissions as well. And I think there's a real tension within electric vehicles. At the moment, they're considered as one homogeneous group and all electric vehicles are good. 
I, I think there's very much good electric vehicles and there's bad electric vehicles. We would never suggest that all internal combustion engines are all the same. You know, we're, we're so used to thinking about sort of rating them and telling uh, you know which ones are better than others. I think we should apply that sort of same discrimination within electric vehicles. And the particular issue that, that bothers me is that because most journeys are actually relatively short, what it means is if you've got a 80 kilowatt hour battery pack, which weighs, I don't know, 500 kilos, you're not using most of it most of the time, but you are carrying it around with you. So where people talk about how efficient electric motors are, and that's true, very efficient. But equally, you have the issue, there's a big inefficiency with, uh, with essentially large electric vehicles. Is You're carting around this very heavy thing, which you don't use most of the time. That, in a sense, is the Achilles heel. What would be more logical would be to have lighter, smaller EVs with smaller battery packs. And so then you're using more of the capacity of the battery more of the time, and the overall vehicle weight is therefore a lot lower. But that's where there's this collision between the, those just inherent physics of, of the, the technology with consumer preference going towards big SUVs. And that, I don't think, is, is, is properly appreciated. And you could have two very, very different outcomes for both CO2 emissions and uh, non-exhaust emissions. If the, if the whole world went to big SUV EV, or if the whole world went to smaller, smaller battery EVs, two totally different outcomes. That's why I don't think we can think of EVs as one single homogeneous group. And there is one particular sort of subplot within this, which is particularly happening in Europe um, at the moment and driven by the new WLTP regulation, which is the, the world harmonized regulation that's just come in for, for CO2 and fuel economy labeling, which is that uh, the if vehicles are uh, below 50 grams per kilometer of, of CO2, they qualify for super credits under the fleet average CO2 cafe type regulation, but also leads to various tax advantages in different countries. So people are being incentivized to switch to these plug-in hybrids. Now, the prevalent forms of these plug-in hybrids are big SUVs and, and, and also you know, big saloon cars, but particularly big SUVs. And so what you've got is people who've switched are those people who are driving those very big cars already, and there's no guarantee that they charge them up. Uh, in fact, in a lot, a lot of European places, about 75% of the time, people are not charging up the battery, which is it's about the opposite situation in America. And a lot of it, I think, is about access to overnight uh, mm. charging. Um, yes. But you know, roughly 75% of the time, people are not charging these things up in Europe. So what you've got is these, these big SUVs, that are actually probably even worse than a standard internal combustion engine because of the added weight. Yet the owner bought them in good faith. And in the official statistics, they will be very low CO2 emissions. And that driver is getting all sorts of advantages in tag. The manufacturer is getting all sorts of advantages towards the CO2 target. But in practice, they may well be higher than the, the old diesel SUV that they replace. And I think this is this is the main Achilles heel in the current European system. If you were being cynical, you would say it's the big back door that's been engineered in to, to smooth the way and to basically dilute 
the aggressiveness of the regulation, it is a real problem. And it comes back to it, almost to where we started in this, this whole interview is um, about a divergence growing up between official figures and what's happening on the ground. And the whole reason setting up emissions analytics in the first place was to try and bring focus and data about what's happening in real world. And, and so I am I'm genuinely very concerned about uh, you know, the effects of plug-in hybrids. And they could be really good if, if deployed in a certain way, but if, if left unattended, they may be, everyone goes for them because they give to respond to the incentives. It'd actually be a really bad thing uh, for the environment. So it's another form of electrification, if you like, that it could be good, it could be bad. We just need to be much more attentive to the detail and not be polemical about you know, if, it, if it's electrified, if it's a plug-in thing, it must be good. I think we need to be a, a lot more sophisticated, a lot more informed by the data than that. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Nick so much for being on the show today. It was a real pleasure to have you. And if you are looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening.